Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, welcome back, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Catholic Light. Today we'll read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 407 through 440, which will bring us into the second chapter of the Apostles' Creed, the chapter that begins, I believe, in Jesus Christ. So recall, there are four parts to the Catechism. First part is about the Creed. Second part is about the sacraments. Third part is on the commandments. Fourth part is on prayer. And then each part has two sections. So far, we've covered part one, section one, and we are currently in part one, section two, which goes through each line of the Apostles' Creed. So with today's episode, we will finish that first chapter, that's what the Catechism refers to it as, that begins, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And then we'll move into, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So you are doing great. You're making your way through this awesome resource of the Catholic faith, which sadly many never crack open because of its length, its perceived difficulty, or for other reasons. So slowly and steadily, you are winning the race. Well done. Today we'll talk about the Immaculate Conception and God, who is outside of time and space, planned even in the Garden of Eden to send his only begotten son to suffer and die to open the gates of heaven and to save us from eternal damnation. Before Adam and Eve committed original sin, before the fall, before we had need of a savior, God had that savior and that plan of salvation in the works. And part of that plan of salvation, a big part of that plan, includes the Blessed Virgin Mary. So Mary goes by many titles. Many refer to her as the Blessed Mother, the Virgin Mary, the Queen of Heaven. She's also referred to as the Immaculate Conception. When she appeared to St. Bernadette of Subaru in Lourdes, France, she appeared as and called herself the Immaculate Conception. Oftentimes, her virginity and her immaculate conception uh, get mixed up. So I think I've mentioned previously that I'm the, the oldest of four children, and before my sister and I were each married, we shared an apartment for about three years, and at the end of each workday, we would come back to our apartment, and we would exchange anecdotes about you know work and life. Now, I was a Catholic high school theology teacher, um, and my sister is a CPA who works for one of the big four firms in Philadelphia. And so our, our conversations were very funny and varied at the end of the day. She'd be talking about W-2s and 1099s and TALs, tax area leaders, or PAS, um, these acronyms for, for different divisions within the tax department. I would be talking about anecdotes of lives of the saints, um, fun facts about popes, Old Testament types fulfilled in New Testament events. And one of the things that I, I started to talk about more and more was the Immaculate Conception. It was one of those topics that as I taught, I learned more about myself. So they say one of the best ways to learn is to teach because you prepare lesson plans, you have to figure out how to explain it in a way that's understandable, palatable to different audiences. So the, the more I studied and then taught about the Immaculate Conception, the more passionate I became about it because it's one of those teachings of the Catholic faith that is often 
misunderstood or conflated with another teaching of the Catholic faith. So the Immaculate Conception is defined as the conception of Mary, the Blessed Mother, in her mother's womb. So her mother was St. Anne, her father St. Joachim. So the Immaculate Conception is the conception of Mary in her mother's womb, free from the stain of original sin. At the risk of sounding a little crude, um, the Immaculate Conception involved sex. So St. Anne and St. Joachim slept together. They conceived Mary, as all couples conceive a child. But the difference here was that God preserved her from the stain of original sin. So unfortunately, we all inherit at the moment of our conception the stain of original sin, which Adam and Eve um, committed, and then we contract through the humanity that they pass on to each one of us. The Immaculate Conception is often mixed up with the virgin birth, which is the conception of Jesus in his mother's womb, his mother being Mary. So the Immaculate Conception is Mary's conception. The virgin birth, or prior to that, the virgin conception, is the conception of Jesus in his mother's womb. So again, at the risk of sounding a little crude, the virgin birth, as the title implies, did not involve sex. We can look at the dates of each of these uh, celebrations, each of these feast days. So for those of you who attend or attended Catholic school, you might have had or have a day off for the Immaculate Conception, which is December 8th. We celebrate the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, again, when Mary was conceived in her mother's, St. Anne's womb, free from the stain of original sin. We celebrate this on December 8th. So if she's conceived December 8th, count ahead nine months, we land on September 8th, and that's the day the church celebrates Mary's birthday. So given a typical nine-month pregnancy, she's conceived December 8th, she's then born September 8th. We celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. So when the Holy Spirit comes upon the Blessed Mother and conceives Jesus in her womb, which then leads to the virgin birth, we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation on March 25th. So recall this passage in scripture, the angel Gabriel comes to the Blessed Mother, says, behold, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will conceive and bear the Son of God. Mary says, let it be done to me according to your word. In other words, she said yes. She used her free will. God respects all of our free wills. She uses her free will to say yes to this invitation conveyed through the angel Gabriel. And she, a virgin, so we believe the Blessed Mother never slept with St. Joseph, becomes pregnant with Jesus. Again, we celebrate this on March 25th. So count ahead the typical nine-month pregnancy, and we land on December 25th, or Christmas, the day the church celebrates Jesus's birthday. These two beliefs, these two teachings, are often misunderstood or mixed up with each other. Um, I believe, one, because there's no scripture passage for the Immaculate Conception. So we don't read anywhere in scripture that Mary was conceived without original sin. However, as we'll address in other episodes, this teaching is alluded to in the Old Testament, and then we have evidence for it throughout the New Testament. Also, if you, if you look at the sacred tradition of the church, what the early church fathers, 
what um, many saints and theologians have written throughout church history, dating back to the time of Jesus. Um, even the apostles believed in the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Mother. So recall that divine revelation comes to us through sacred scripture and through sacred tradition. Not every belief is recorded in sacred scripture. Much of it comes to us through sacred tradition. For example, we've, we've mentioned in a previous episode the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. However, it's the central mystery of our Catholic faith. So there are no scripture passages detailing the Immaculate Conception. So on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, December 8th, the church reads the gospel passage about the Annunciation. We're celebrating St. Anne and St. Joachim coming together to conceive their baby daughter, Mary. But we're reading about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary to conceive Jesus. So it's very understandable why, why many get this mixed up. Okay, we, we go to celebrate the Immaculate Conception, and yet we're reading about the virginal conception of Jesus rather than the conception of Mary. Secondly, pop culture gets this wrong all the time. So years ago, I used to watch um, this show, House, which with which many of you might be familiar. It was this, this show about this very quirky, very brilliant doctor and Dr. House. And in one episode... A young woman comes into the clinic and she says, um, you know, I'm pregnant, but I just don't know how I got to be this way. In other words, I don't remember having sex, getting pregnant. And so Dr. House looks at her and says, oh, must be another immaculate conception. This is wrong. What he means is, oh, this must be another virginal conception or another virgin birth about to happen. In other words, maybe the Holy Spirit came upon you in the midst of your sleep and conceived a child in your womb. This is not the Immaculate Conception, or that illusion does not fit, because again, the Immaculate Conception refers to St. Anne and St. Joachim, very much aware of what they were doing, coming together to conceive the Blessed Mother. And by the grace of God, that conception was free from the stain of original sin. So, returning to my sister in our, our post-work chats, she saw how impassioned I became about clearly defining and not mixing up with Jesus's conception, Mary's immaculate conception. So sometimes she, she would purposely mix up the definitions to get my goat. And one time we were out with a bunch of girlfriends having drinks, and she casually used the wrong definition. I stood up at the bar and was like, how could you? Oh, oh wait a minute. You're joking. And I look like a fool. Okay. You know you're a Catholic nerd when... You're out at the bar having drinks with your girlfriend, and you get up to defend the Immaculate Conception. So, well before Adam and Eve commit original sin, before they're even created, before God even creates the Garden of Eden, he who is outside of time and space knows that they will turn from him, knows they will commit the original sin, and that there will be ramifications for all of humanity. And so what does he do? He plans to send his only begotten son to suffer and die for us, and he plans to create this beautiful woman, free from the stain of original sin, this spotless tabernacle to house, to grow, to gestate, and eventually give birth to the only begotten Son of God. God has a beautiful plan for us from the beginning, and one that accounts for our faults, our sins, our missteps. We'll read today in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 410. It says, after his fall, man was not abandoned by God. 
On the contrary, God calls him and in a mysterious way heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from his fall. This passage in Genesis is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer, of a battle between the serpent and the woman, and of the final victory of a descendant of hers. The Proto-Evangelium, this name given to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head, while you strike at their heel. That word enmity means complete and total opposition. And uh, many of us are familiar with this imagery of the snake representing the devil. This woman then, who's referred to right at the beginning of the Bible, so Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve commit uh, original sin, has throughout sacred tradition, throughout the history of the church, um, that woman is acknowledged as the Blessed Virgin Mary. So I'll read that passage again. The Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, right in the, the third chapter of Genesis says, I will put enmity, or complete and total opposition, between you, he's speaking to the snake in the Garden of Eden, also known as the devil, between you and the woman, okay, which tradition tells us is the Blessed Virgin Mary, and between your offspring, so those who follow the devil, and hers, who's the offspring of the Blessed Mother, but Jesus Christ, and eventually his followers. They will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. So the offspring, quote-unquote, offspring of the devil and the, quote-unquote, offspring of the Blessed Mother will strike at each other. Mary is at enmity, or complete and total opposition with the devil because she's without sin. So the devil has no hold, no sway over her. One of the effects of original sin is a million-dollar theology word known as concupiscence. Okay, concupiscence is a wound of original sin, which means even though after we're baptized, we're cleansed, we're washed of original sin, we still have this, this little wound of original sin. So imagine... You could use the analogy of, of getting cut. You get cut. You can wash away the blood. You can even put ointment and a Band-Aid over that cut. But oftentimes there's, there's a little scar that still remains. So that, that scar, we could say, is concupiscence or this wound of original sin. We're cleansed. We're washed clean of our original sin. But we still have this wound or this weakness because of original sin. And that wound, that weakness, that concupiscence is a, a tendency to sin. So it's in our human condition, our fallen human condition, it's often much easier to wake up on Sunday, roll over and think, oh, my bed is so comfortable, I'm just going to sleep in, rather than do what's a little more difficult, and that's get up and pray or go to church. Um, it's a little bit easier to cheat on a test than to put in the hard work of studying for it. It's often a little easier to tell a little lie to save face or to save someone's feelings rather than do the difficult task of speaking truthfully. Because the Blessed Mother was kept free from the stain of original sin, she does not have that wound. She does not have that tendency, that weakness, that proclivity towards sin. So Satan has no hold on her or her offspring, Christ, 
who was also born without original sin, he who is fully man, but also fully God, and then those who follow Christ. As Catechism of the Catholic Church 410 says, if we're on Mary's team, we win. Okay, this passage refers to, um, the, that final line says, the final victory of a descendant of hers. So if we follow the Blessed Mother and her offspring, Jesus Christ, we are caught up in that final victory against the serpent, the devil, and his offspring. So sign up to be on Mary and Jesus's team, and we're assured that that final victory. That doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. Um, It will still be difficult and marked by suffering. But the good news is, as we make our way through life, through these sufferings, through these sadnesses, through these difficulties, we know that Christ has already won. And if we sign up for his team, for the Blessed Mother's team, we too win in the end. At some point um, when I was at Steubenville, prior to going to Steubenville, um, my parents had a beautiful relationship with the Blessed Mother and we would pray the rosary as a family. So I had some idea of what she was like and her role in our lives. But when I got to Steubenville, I encountered a number of students who like really loved the Blessed Mother. <laughs> so uh, I saw a student walking around campus with um, this, this baby blue t-shirt that had a picture of the Immaculate Heart of Mary on it. And it said underneath, Mary is my home girl. And I was like, you know what? I want Mary to be my homegirl too. So I started praying, Blessed Mother, I know that you love each of us. You love Jesus. You want us to be close to your son and your son to be close to us. I don't completely understand my relationship with you, but I pray for the grace to, one, understand it better, and two, to grow closer to you. And as a result of growing closer to you, I pray to draw closer to your son. So I'd like to think about how God could have done so many things, so many different ways. So God could have come to us any way he wanted. Um, he could have you know, descended from heaven on a cloud. He could have arrived in a, a bolt of lightning and, and thunder. So it was unmistakable that, that God had arrived. But he comes to us in this very beautiful, hidden, humble, quiet way in a stinky little manger through the Blessed Mother. And so if we're to imitate him, if we're taking the WWJD approach, what would Jesus do? He comes to us through the Blessed Mother. We can imitate him and go back to him through the Blessed Mother. We can imitate what Christ does, and that is going through the Blessed Mother. So if if it's a little foreign to you, um, a relationship with Mary or how Mary factors into your relationship with Jesus, um, take a moment to pray this week to know her, to love her, and as a result, to know and love her son more. This brings us back to the very beginning of the episode. Uh, all this talk of the Blessed Mother, of the Immaculate Conception, of God having a plan even before the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve commit original sin. This brings us all back to um, that beautiful idea that God, who is outside of time and space, has a beautiful plan for each and every one of our lives. Even when we sin and turn from him, he weaves those discordant notes of the symphony into the greater whole to make it better and even more beautiful. We'll read today in paragraph 412 of the Catechism, 
But why did God not prevent the first man from sinning? St. Leo the Great responds, Christ's inexpressible grace gave us blessings better than those the demon's envy had taken away. And St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, There is nothing to prevent human's nature, excuse me, human nature is being raised up to something greater, even after sin. God permits evil in order to draw forth some greater good. Thus St. Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the exultant sings, O happy fault, which gained for us so great a redeemer. What the heck? God, why do you love us so much? Not only do you forgive us for turning from you, then you send your only son to suffer and die on our behalf, to atone for our sins, to make our relationship right with God. You then, quote unquote, give us blessings better than those the demon's envy had taken away. And, quote unquote, you raise us up to something even greater. In other words, in Adam and Eve, we turn from you, and then you offer us something even better than the Garden of Eden. You are too good to us, Lord, too good. So this brings us back to the very beginning. God, who is truth, beauty, and goodness itself, who could have enjoyed giving and receiving, giving and receiving love, the eternal blessedness he enjoyed in the Trinity for all of eternity, without ever having to create a single thing or a single person. He could have gone on forever and ever and ever, never having created, but he doesn't. He pours out that blessed life upon us, and then he doesn't stop there. He keeps on giving and giving and giving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. What a God. Let's pray this week this week to be open to receive all that God wishes to pour out upon us. So we'll pray for the grace to come to know him through the Blessed Mother, this beautiful woman who played a key role in salvation history and through whom he comes to us. And let's pray for this openness to receive all the truth, the beauty, the goodness that God has to offer. We'll also pray, Lord, when we stumble, when we fall, when we sin, please help us, give us the grace to get back up and to trust that that's a new beginning, that you have something even better in store for us. You are not going to abandon us, not going to leave us stuck in our sin, but you're going to draw us down the path to something even more beautiful that you have in mind for us. Amen. We'll pause for a brief break, and then we'll return to read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 407 through 440. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and now we'll continue our reading of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 407 through 440. A Hard Battle The doctrine of original sin, closely connected with that of redemption by Christ, provides lucid discernment of man's situation and activity in the world. By our first parent's sin, the devil has acquired a certain domination over man, even though man remains free. Original sin entails captivity under the power of him who thenceforth had the power of death, that is, the devil. Ignorance of the fact that man has a wounded nature inclined to evil gives rise to serious errors in the areas of education, politics, social action, and morals. 
The consequences of original sin and of all men's personal sins put the world as a whole in the sinful condition aptly described in St. John's expression, the sin of the world. This expression can also refer to the negative influence exerted on people by communal situations and social structures that are the fruit of men's sins. This dramatic situation of the whole world, which is in the power of the evil one, makes man's life a battle. The whole of man's history has been the story of dour combat with the powers of evil, stretching, so our Lord tells us, from the very dawn of history until the last day. Finding himself in the midst of the battlefield, man has to struggle to do what is right, and it is at great cost to himself, and aided by God's grace, that he, could, he succeeds in achieving his own inner integrity. You did not abandon him to the power of death. After his fall, man was not abandoned by God. On the contrary, God calls him and in a mysterious way heralds the coming victory over evil and his restoration from his fall. This passage in Genesis is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first announcement of the Messiah and Redeemer, of a battle between the serpent and the woman, and of the final victory of a descendant of hers. The Christian tradition sees in this passage an announcement of the new Adam, who, because he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, makes amends superabundantly for the disobedience of Adam. Furthermore, many fathers and doctors of the church have seen the woman announced in the Proto-Evangelium as Mary, the mother of Christ, the new Eve. Mary benefited first of all, and uniquely from, Christ's victory over sin. She was preserved from all stain of original sin, and by a special grace of God, committed no sin of any kind during her whole earthly life. But why did God not prevent the first man from sinning? St. Leo the Great responds, Christ's inexpressible grace gave us blessings better than those the demon's envy had taken away. And St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, There is nothing to prevent human nature as being raised up to something greater, even after sin. God permits evil in order to draw forth some greater good. Thus St. Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And the exalted sings, O happy fault, which gained for us so great a Redeemer. In brief, God did not make death, and he does not delight in the death of the living. It was through the devil's envy that death entered the world. Satan, or the devil, and the other demons are fallen angels who have freely refused to serve God and his plan. Their choice against God is definitive. They try to associate man in their revolt against God. Although set by God in a state of rectitude, man, enticed by the evil one, abused his freedom at the very start of history. He lifted himself up against God and sought to attain his goal apart from him. By his sin, Adam, as the first man, lost the original holiness and justice he had received from God, not only for himself, but for all human beings. Adam and Eve transmitted to their descendants human nature, wounded by their own first sin, and hence deprived of original holiness and justice. This deprivation is called original sin. As a result of original sin, human nature is weakened in its powers, subject to ignorance, suffering, and the domination of death, and inclined to sin. This inclination is called concupiscence. We therefore hold with the Council of Trent that original sin is transmitted with human nature by propagation, not by imitation, and that it is proper to each. The victory that Christ won over sin has given us greater blessings than those which sin had taken away from us. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. 
Christians believe that the world has been established and kept in being by the Creator's love, has fallen into slavery to sin, but has been set free by Christ, crucified and risen to break the power of the evil one. Chapter 2. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. The good news, God has sent his Son. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God has visited his people. He has fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants. He acted far beyond all expectation. He has sent his own beloved Son. We believe and confess that Jesus of Nazareth, born a Jew of a daughter of Israel at Bethlehem, at the time of King Herod the Great and the Emperor Caesar Augustus, a carpenter by trade, who died crucified in Jerusalem under the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, is the eternal Son of God made man. He came from God, descended from heaven, and came in the flesh. For the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Moved by the grace of the Holy Spirit and drawn by the Father, we believe in Jesus and confess, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. On the rock of this faith, confessed by St. Peter, Christ built his church. To preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. The transmission of the Christian faith consists primarily in proclaiming Jesus Christ in order to lead others to faith in him. From the beginning, the first disciples burned with the desire to proclaim Christ. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And they invite people of every era to enter into the joy of their communion with Christ. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. At the heart of catechesis, Christ. At the heart of catechesis, we find, in essence, a person, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the only Son from the Father, who suffered and died for us, and who now, after rising, is living with us forever. To catechize is to reveal in the person of Christ the whole of God's eternal design, reaching fulfillment in that person. It is to seek to understand the meaning of Christ's actions and words, and of the signs worked by him. Catechesis aims at putting people in communion with Jesus Christ. Only he can lead us to the love of the Father in the Spirit and make us share in the life of the Holy Trinity. In catechesis, Christ, the incarnate Word and Son of God, is taught. Everything else is taught with reference to him, and it is Christ alone who teaches. Anyone else teaches to the extent that he is Christ's spokesman, enabling Christ to teach with his lips. Every catechist should be able to apply to himself the mystery, excuse me, the mysterious words of Jesus. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Whoever is called to teach Christ must first seek the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. He must suffer the loss of all things in order to gain Christ and be found in him, and to know him and the power of his resurrection, and to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
that if possible, he may attain the resurrection from the dead. From this loving knowledge of Christ springs the desire to proclaim him, to evangelize, and to lead others to the yes of faith in Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the need to know this faith better makes itself felt. To this end, following the order of the creed, Jesus' principal titles, Christ, Son of God, and Lord, will be presented. The creed next confesses the chief mysteries of his life, those of his incarnation, paschal mystery, and glorification. Article 2, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Jesus. Jesus means in Hebrew, God saves. At the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel gave him the name Jesus as his proper name, which expresses both his identity and his mission. Since God alone can forgive sins, it is God who, in Jesus his eternal Son made man, will save his people from their sins. In Jesus, God recapitulates all of his history of salvation on behalf of men. In the history of salvation, God was not content to deliver Israel out of the house of bondage by bringing them out of Egypt. He also saves them from their sin. Because sin is always an offense against God, only he can forgive it. For this reason, Israel, becoming more and more aware of the universality of sin, will no longer be able to seek salvation except by invoking the name of the Redeemer God. The name Jesus signifies that the very name of God is present in the person of his Son, made man for the universal and definitive redemption from sins. It is the divine name that alone brings salvation, and henceforth all can invoke his name, for Jesus united himself to all men through his incarnation, so that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name of the Savior God was invoked only once in the year by the high priest in atonement for the sins of Israel, after he had sprinkled the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies with the sacrificial blood. The mercy seat was the place of God's presence. When St. Paul speaks of Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood, he means that in Christ's humanity, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus' resurrection glorifies the name of the Savior God, for from that time on, it is the name of Jesus that fully manifests the supreme power of the name which is above every name. The evil spirits fear his name. In his name, his disciples perform miracles, for the Father grants all they ask in his name. The name of Jesus is at the heart of Christian prayer. All liturgical prayers conclude with the words, Through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Hail Mary reaches its high point in the words, Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. The Eastern prayer of the heart, the Jesus prayer, says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Many Christians, such as St. Joan of Arc, have died with the one word Jesus on their lips. Christ. The word Christ comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed. It became the name proper to Jesus only because he accomplished perfectly the divine mission that Christ signifies. In effect, in Israel, those consecrated to God for a mission that he gave were anointed in his name. This was the case for kings, for priests, and in rare instances for prophets. This had to be the case all the more so for the Messiah whom God would send to inaugurate his kingdom definitively. It was necessary that the Messiah be anointed by the Spirit of the Lord at once as king and priest, and also as prophet. Jesus fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel in his threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. To the shepherds, the angel announced the birth of Jesus as the Messiah promised to Israel. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, 
who is Christ the Lord. From the beginning, he was the one whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, conceived as holy in Mary's virginal womb. God called Joseph to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, so that Jesus, who is called Christ, should be born of Joseph's spouse into the messianic lineage of David. Jesus' messianic consecration reveals his divine mission, for the name Christ implies he who anointed, he who was anointed, and the very anointing with which he was anointed. The one who anointed is the Father, the one who was anointed is the Son, and he was anointed with the Spirit who is the anointing. His eternal messianic consecration was revealed during the time of his earthly life at the moment of his baptism by John, when God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, that he might be revealed to Israel as its Messiah. His works and words will manifest him as the Holy One of God. Many Jews and even certain Gentiles who shared their hope recognized in Jesus the fundamental attributes of the Messianic Son of David promised by God to Israel. Jesus accepted his rightful title of Messiah, though with some reserve because it was understood by some of his contemporaries in two human sense, as essentially political. Jesus accepted Peter's profession of faith, which acknowledged him to be the Messiah, by announcing the imminent passion of the Son of Man. He unveiled the authentic content of his messianic kingship, both in the transcendent identity of the Son of Man who came down from heaven, and in his redemptive mission as the suffering servant. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Hence, the true meaning of his kingship is revealed only when he is raised high on the cross. Only after his resurrection will Peter be able to proclaim Jesus' messianic kingship to the people of God. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Thanks so much for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and let me know what you think of this week's episode. If you have a story about the Blessed Mother, about a way that she's touched your life, or perhaps you have a tip that will help others grow in their relationship with her, please share it in the comments section of this week's Instagram post. Please pray for me. I'm praying for you, and I'll see you next week. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.